I'd like to <coughs> base this evening's talk on a poem that many of you will already be very familiar with. But in case you've forgotten it, or for those of you who aren't, I'll begin by reading the poem. It's the autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. What I'd like to do this evening is to draw some parallels uh, between this poem and the path that we're all walking on here on retreat and also in our lives. And maybe to try and trace in this, this poem the journey that we all make to get to that place where we truly walk down another street. The path of freedom, of kindness, of compassion. So let's think about or reflect on chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. My reading of this chapter is that it describes the many layers of confusion that distort our capacity to live the life we long to live. A life of consciousness, of mindfulness, of an intentional life guided by wakefulness and compassion And without these qualities, quite frankly, life often just feels to be full of holes. That we can go through our lives confused, feeling that we live in a kind of chaotic world, inwardly and outwardly, where random events just seem to happen and we can't figure out why. And then this this chapter refers at times to the kind of helplessness or powerlessness, even the sense of despair we can flounder in when we fall in the same holes. Ever found yourself in that situation? You know, we've got a relationship of conflict and and you you don't even, you feel helpless to change it. Um, the despair that we can sometimes feel where we, where we act or speak in ways that we know really well undermines our well-being. Or in our mind, you know, we brought this up in the question period today, you know, this, this feeling of walking these incredibly same repetitive circles of obsession and preoccupation, of anxiety, and we just seem to fall in them. It's like they're grooves and we just fall in. We don't know how it happens. It's, it, this chapter for me describes the, the kind of, that sense of getting ambushed by thoughts and emotional storms, the sense of struggle. You ever notice that when you sit, you know, and you can be fairly calm and fairly quiet, and it's like this tsunami of thought storm just comes marching in, and you can switch from that place of calmness to this chaos in a matter of seconds. 
It's that feeling of being lost. This is what the Buddha described as being samsara. Translated from the Tibetan, it literally means to walk in circles, samsara. It's a mind in life where we feel very impulsive, where our, our hearts and minds feel kind of governed by whatever passing thought or emotion or mental state just happens to arrive or turn up. And it's actually that feeling of being lost. I think it's where just too many things in the world, outwardly and inwardly, kind of feel to be just a gatekeeper of our happiness, a gatekeeper of our well-being. And that sense of helplessness, helplessness in the, in the face of events in our lives or our bodies, our mind, I mean, you know that, you know, how easily our worlds can crumble, that we can go from a state of health to a state of illness, from, you know, a state of kind of ability to a place of, of disability. How quickly this fragile life can crumble. And I think when with that confusion reigns, it can often feel as if we really don't have a refuge anywhere, as if there's not much that we can rest in or rely, in, rely upon. And confusion is not a neutral feeling. Confusion, I think, is a very painful feeling, and, and it, it kind of opens the doorway to, to powerful and very overwhelming feelings at times of, of self-doubt, of despair, of depression and anxiety. But it's also so important to remember that this place of confusion is also the place where the path of awakening begins. The Buddha so firmly put the path of liberation, the path of awakening firmly in the classroom of our bodies, our minds, our lives. And he never ever spoke about finding freedom outside of the difficult but within it. As Reb Anderson, in a very much loved Zen teacher, once said it, he said, Buddhas don't sit in the suburbs of suffering. They sit downtown. And this is so aligned with what the Buddha taught. This is where we are. This is the life we meet. And it was this teaching of imminence that truly did make the Buddha such a radical teacher of his time when all the spiritual seekers around him were busy at devising ingenious and, and creative ways and strategies to subdue and overcome and transcend the body, the, our mind, our life. Or if not possible to do that, at least at that time looking upon all of this, this human existence with a kind of disdain or judgment. And I think this is actually what made the Buddha something of a genius, you know, to kind of hold up his hand in the midst of all of these avoidance strategies and say, wait a minute, you know, maybe we actually really need to pay attention to what is going on here. Maybe we're being asked to understand, to make peace with, and to find freedom in this life rather than to get rid of it. And that maybe in this world of 10,000 joys and sorrows, maybe this is the ground of liberation and compassion. Compassion. The Buddha very much acknowledged, as we acknowledge, that in this very fragile and unpredictable life, that we are all going to meet our own measure of joy and love and happiness, and that we are all also going to meet 
our own measure of affliction and adversity. And that none of us, no matter how ingenious or creative we can be, can totally defend ourselves against the winds of change, against the winds of uncertainty. What this path teaches us is that affliction and adversity do not ask for aversion or resistance or judgment, but they ask for compassion and for patience and acceptance and understanding. And the path of awakening, as it's really taught in this tradition over centuries, is truly not concerned with manipulating the world, but of transforming our hearts and minds. I think perhaps the very first step we take on that journey of transformation is actually to look life and to look this moment in the eye. It's a very fearless path to know suffering as suffering, to know pain as pain, to know struggle as struggle, just as we're asked to know joy as joy and calm as calm and happiness as happiness. Now, this sounds like a very simple thing to do. It doesn't, it sounds quite logical thing, really quite logical, reasonable thing to do. But in reality, for most of us, it's an immense leap. It's an immense leap. It's like Nagarjuna, one of the great Indian teachers of the past, he says, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? <laughs> Well, you could get very busy trying to make it go away. Or we could stop still. The line in the poem, it says, It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out of the hole. Now, the way that I'm, I'm taking a lot of literary license here, you know. <laughs> But the way that I'm reading this line is that this is not a statement of irresponsibility or dismissiveness. You know, it's not my fault. You know, it just takes a long forever to get out. The ground of confusion that we begin in is actually not our fault. You know, we didn't wake up this morning and decide this was a good day to be miserable. We didn't wake up this morning deciding it's a good day to be depressed or enraged or despairing. We, we didn't come into a sitting and say, oh, this is a fine sitting to be lost in impatience or resistance. We didn't choose, any of us, to be born into the bodies we were born into. We didn't choose our families, the circumstances of our lives that we were born into. And many of the holes that we fall into and find ourselves lost in, many of those holes actually have a very long lineage. You know, we can have generations of ancestors who've practiced impatience and aversion and fear really well. You know, and none of us, none of us are independent of conditions. Throughout our lives, we have been impacted by the conditions and the lives of others, just as we impact the conditions and the lives of all of those around us. The stories and the habits and the views of others have been incorporated into our own stories and play their own part in shaping our confusion or our understanding. I think this is so important to acknowledge, to really question where did we begin to learn to fear or to doubt ourselves or 
to be judgmental. None of us were born angry, enraged, filled with views. In many ways, these are lessons we have learned through our lives, and in truth, you know, they're not actually anybody's fault. Because everyone has their own lineage and their own ancestors. Yet fault, I think, is where our mind goes too easily. You know, we think, if I was a better person, if I was a more worthy person, if I was a kinder person, all would be marvelous. I think one of the first lessons we learn in this journey is the way in which fault and blame compound suffering. And yet, blame and fault, two of the things we tend to do to console this terrible feeling of helplessness is to find out whose fault it is. But you could, it's very important to see this tension that we can get caught into because if we feed the tendency to blame, to find fault, to judge, you know, all the should, the shoulds, the shoulding we do, if we feed that tendency, then we're also going to feed this other tendency to strive to become, to take credit, you know. Oh, I'm such a schmuck over here, then I'm going to be wonderful over here, you know. And look, you know, oh, I lost it so many times in this city and I'm such an unworthy meditator. Oh, look, I got two breaths in a row. I'm such a really getting somewhere, you know. I'm really excelling in this. And it's a terrible tension that we can swing between finding fault or trying to become. And I think there is another way that we can learn to be still. And we can learn to see in this moment, no matter what the history is, no matter how many ancestors, no matter how long the lineage is, that we can learn to be still in this moment and see suffering as suffering, pain as pain, and begin to soften, to open, to embrace, to befriend. And in my understanding, this is the first great leap in waking up. It's the first step in the path of discovering that we are actually not helpless, that we are not powerless, that we maybe don't need to be lost. (coughs) Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. And it still takes a long time to get out. We pretend we don't see. I think we can relate to this. (laughs) I think we can relate to this. How many times have you said that to yourself? I cannot believe I'm doing this again. You know, or I cannot believe I'm in this same place. Now, first of all, we have to consider this word again. Because the word again to me is one of the greatest saboteurs of the beginner's mind. Oh, again, and I'm angry again. Oh, I'm dull again. It's not very very helpful, really, is it? You know, it has such a kind of baggage of of blame and, and kind of fixing and solidifying, not only ourselves, but other people. But still, we sometimes really can't believe we're in the same place. You know, the same place, same place of fantasy, the same place of obsession, the same place of disappointment. And, you know, we, the reason why we can't believe it is because we know this too well. We know, you know, sometimes we know the history of all of these places. It's like there is not a scrap more insight to be squeezed out of this loop, <laughs> you know. We know how we got there, you know. It's, it's like we've been in therapy for years, you know. 
We have all the story, we have all the history. And we also know where these loops go, some of them. You know, like fantasy and disappointment. It's not like they have different outcomes, do they? You know, it's, it's not like walking this circle of aversion is suddenly going to have miraculously some fantastically different outcome of, you know, this breakthrough into compassion. We know exactly where they go, and we know it's unhelpful. And this is very interesting, I think. These times, we, these holes we fall into, if we really look at them, these repetitive ones, I think sometimes we have a, see we have a kind of, sometimes a little and a kind of rather perverse attachment to our holes. <laughs> you ever notice that? You know, the Buddha, when he talked about confusion, when he talked, and he, and he used the word ignorance, and he didn't use it the way that we use it in this sort of, you know, lack of knowledge or blaming kind of way. He really used it in this way of confusion. But he says there's two parts to confusion. One is not knowing, and the other part is not wanting to know. Not wanting to know. Now that's, that's, the inter- that's the really interesting part for me. And we don't want to know. I remember some years ago working with someone on, on long-term retreat. And you can imagine, if you've been on retreat for six months, you know a little bit about craving. You know, you really get to spot it pretty well. You know, and they said they woke up, you know, they'd had a, and they'd had a sort of difficult day, and suddenly the thought arose, chocolate. <laughs> chocolate. Now, the shop, the nearest shop, like, is like, you know, was at that time, you know, a couple of miles away, you know. So they set off walking all the way, they said, to the store. You know, there was a thought chocolate, and there was this little voice saying, you really don't need this, you know, this is really not going to help, you know. <laughs> you know, this is really a bad idea. You know, and they got to the store, and they bought the chocolate, and they had that tiny little moment of delight, and all the way back to the cushion, it was... You know, why did I do that? That really wasn't that helpful. You know, it was a very long four or five mile walk, you know, just so I could sit with this little voice that says, you know what you're doing and you're pretending you don't know. It's very interesting. It's good to see that learning to let go of self-blame, learning to let go of judgment does not mean letting go of discernment or discriminating wisdom. And in this teaching, so much value is given to actually cultivating this capacity we have for discernment and discriminating wisdom, which is very, very different from the judgmental mind, which is filled with aversion. But it's really beginning to sense that struggle, you know, there is pain in this life, clearly, which is not optional. But there is a lot of pain and struggle in this life, which is the child of confusion, and which is optional. But it's really seeing that some of this struggle, these loops that we find ourselves in, these repetitive patterns, They're not kind of random afflictions, you know, that befall us from heaven. They have causes. They're children of confusion. And they manifest many of these struggles in identification and in in craving and aversion. And so much in this teaching, we are really encouraged to see moment to moment where there is struggle, where there is the cause of struggle, and where there is the end of struggle. And it's really seen that this endless endeavor to pursue our demands, our insistence that life should be a certain way, whether it's about chocolate, whether it's about how other people should be, whether it's how I should be, frankly, it's always going to land us in the same hole of frustration, of disappointment, of confusion. Now, waking up, learning to wake up in this teaching includes waking up our capacity for discriminating wisdom, to know, begin to know so intuitively 
with such immediacy what causes suffering, what causes distress in our hearts and minds, and what brings suffering and distress to an end. And pretending something isn't happening is not a good option. This is absolutely a bad option. Pretending it doesn't matter if we entertain, you know, just a few moments of heedlessness or craving or aversion, it doesn't serve us well because it only deepens the habits of heedlessness. There's a wonderful few lines by Patro Rinpoche. He says, do not take lightly these small moments of heedlessness, believing they do no harm, because even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain. He said, do not take lightly these small moments of mindfulness, believing they can hardly help, for drops of water, one by one, in time can fill an ocean. Instead of pretending something's not happening, (laughs) the Buddha did actually encourage something else. And it's really a question of really looking at what it is that we are feeding. What it is that we're feeding in our hearts and minds. Are we feeding that which leads us to fall into the holes? Or are we feeding that which shows us the way out of the holes? Instead of pretending, we're encouraged to actually meet the moment just as it is, without blame, without judgment. We're asked, actually, to learn to let things release themselves. And what we're releasing, you know, what we're letting go of here is not happiness or joy, What we're often letting go of are all these too familiar habits that lead us to fall into holes. I think one of the great blessings of mindfulness is that it really teaches us that everything matters, that everything is worthy of our wholehearted attention. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. It's a habit. And when the Buddha talked about this path, he often talked about it as swimming against the tide. Swimming against the tide. Not just the tide of our culture or our world, but I think you've probably experienced this today, that what we're swimming against is often the tide of our own habits, our views, our fears, our doubts, our beliefs that have become embedded almost in our psyche. And sometimes this this tide feels very powerful. Now, if you just took a few moments just to reflect on what your mind has been doing today. The thoughts, the emotions, the the mental states you've experienced. Do you notice how familiar many of them feel? You know, like how many new thoughts did you have today? How many new mental states did you have today or new emotions? You notice they have that sense of familiarity, like, oh yeah, I really know this. And how often we can get caught in those same, same circles of rumination or fantasy or aversion. And sometimes these psychological and emotional habits they, they feel like they've been with us as long as we can remember. You know, many of them feel like that long. Even more, they can feel so intractable, some of these habits, so stubborn, that they can feel like they're kind of like woven into our identity. And so, you know, I hear people say, you know, like I'm a greed type. You know, or I'm an aversive type, 
or I'm a deluded type. I mean, personally, I don't think anybody is a type. I think, you know, I think it's really unhelpful to think in those terms. But what we do see that is that if we repeat something often enough in our minds, it really feels like a truth, doesn't it? really feels like a truth, and it really does feel to be who we are. And what the Buddha said about this is that what we dwell, this, this is my entirely most favorite phrase of the Buddha's, well, one of them anyway. He says, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. That what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And very often, as we see too, so clearly, the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. I mean, you can see that if you're very prone to anxiety or to fear, you know, how easily the world is filtered through that mental state where everything feels slightly threatening, anxiety-provoking, and we actually kind of solidify that out in the world that this is, you know, a dangerous place to live. You know, you can see it when the, the mental state of aversion is there, how we're filtering the world through that. And do we see that which is well or lovely? No. What we're actually seeing is everything that is imperfect, everything that is amiss. And if we do that enough, it becomes the shape of our mind. It becomes the shape of our world. Sometimes I think these habits of mind can feel so intractable. And actually, sometimes we imagine we have so many habits, you know, that we don't feel like we're anything more than a collection of habits. <laughs> now, this sounds like very bad news. <laughs> but actually, you know, it's really actually very good news. <laughs> I want to tell you why, which I'm sure you're very interested in. The, the really good piece here is that habit and mindfulness do not coexist. You notice that? Habit and mindfulness do not coexist. Every moment of being mindful, of kind, gentle, compassionate, clear attentiveness is a moment of disempowering habit. Mindfulness also takes the selfing out of the habits, the capacity to see it just as aversion or just as fantasy rather than I am. Hmm? So it is really meeting the moment as it is rather than the moment that I am at fault for or responsible for. It is as it is. It is much more approachable. You know, our lives, our minds, our hearts are much more approachable when we can see fantasy as fantasy or craving or craving or aversion as aversion rather than I am. Hmm? Now, I feel it requires immense courage and dedication to step out of the realm of habit. Because you know what? It's stepping into not knowing. It's stepping into not knowing. Because we see our habits can provide a sense, and it's really an illusory sense, of a world that is predictable and known and familiar. It's a story, I don't know if I can remember it, perfectly well. The story of an elderly couple and, and the, the, the man in this elderly couple was reflecting rather quizzically that he didn't quite understand why his wife was so angry with him. And then as he pondered it, he said, you know, I, she's angry because I told her I know her. And apparently his wife had wanted to do something a little bit radical, like go skydiving or something. And, you know, he said, you know, you can't do this. This is not you. I know you. You don't do this. And he went on with this reflection. He says, you know, people are like rubber balls. They bounce. 
they move, they flow. And when you say, I know you, what you're doing, it's like taking a pin and puncturing that rubber ball so it can no longer move, no longer flow, no longer be fluid. And actually, this is sometimes just what habit does. It's a sense of, I know. I know you, I know me, I know th this moment, when actually maybe all we're knowing is a perception that has become embedded in our hearts through dwelling. So stepping into not knowing, that's a very fearless thing. Stepping out of the world of habit is a remarkably courageous thing. Because then, you know what? We have to respond to what is. We can't just react to what is. And the world of reaction is based on this sense of, of thinking we know. You know, if something seems unpleasant or, or, or unpleasant or threatening, well, we know how to avoid. We know how to disconnect. We know how to try and fix it. We know how to use fantasy to smooth discontent or smother it. We know how to use willpower to overcome that which we don't like. What would, without habit, we would be invited really to see the world, to see other people, and to see ourselves anew. And that is our work here. That is our work here, really moment to moment, to learn how to see anew, to respond to what is rather than what we think is. Now, sometimes these habits seem countless and endless. There's a, a wonderful piece by Rumi. Oh, no, I'm sorry, by Kabir. He said, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world. I keep spinning out of myself. I gave up expensive clothes and bought a robe. But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I stopped being a sexual elephant, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I finally gave up anger, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are few that find the path. <laughs> and isn't that, you know, I see this in practice all the time, you know, when we've got this sort of project mind, you know, this retreat I'm working on my greed, next retreat I'm working on my aversion, I got rid of that, now I'm doing my pride, you know, oh, geez, you know, now it's conceit, and oh, I didn't know about that one. And it feels like an archaeological dig. You know. But that's not what this practice is about. It's not an archaeological dig. And it's not doing this kind of, you know, thinking I'm just this mass of kind of defilements, you know, walking mass of defilements. That's not what this practice is all about. I think, we, you know, we've got a really short list of habits here, and they're pretty universal. They're pretty universal. It's a pretty short list. There are emotional threads that recur, that weave themselves into our perceptions, our stories, our beliefs. So let's do the short list. Anxiety or fear. <coughs> there we go. Number one, aversion, ill will or resistance. Number two, craving. Same as discontent. Number three. Number four, self-view. It's not bad, is it? Looks like a very manageable list. Hmm? No? <laughs> <laughs> no manageable at all. <laughs> but it's a short list. It's, it's good. It's a short list. So what do these habits ask for? And this is pretty universal. Does anybody not have any of these? It's pretty universal. What do they ask for? Compassion, curiosity, mindfulness, release. We are reteaching our hearts. That is this path. We are reteaching our hearts to walk on a path of freedom. 
rather than a path of struggle. This path has a beginning. It begins in the knowledge, the knowing of what struggle is. It has a, a, a practice, an application, and it has a fruition to reteach our minds their loveliness. Some of you will be familiar with that part of that poem by Galway Canal. He says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. It really is so helpful for us to look beneath our stories and to see those threads of anxiety and aversion and craving and self-view fueling the story, shaping the mind, and surround those threads with care, with kindness, and we begin to see that those habits that feel so intractable, so historical, can begin to soften. And we can see this in a moment. We can see it in a moment. You know, this is sometimes feels like a long journey, but sometimes it's a moment of instant shifts. You know, have you ever found yourself, you know, maybe, you know, you walk out of here and, and, you know, the person in front of you happens to be, you know, the most mindful, slow yogi in the whole universe. And you're on your way to the bathroom and you can feel that, oh, you know, why don't they just get on with it, you know? And then you can feel, oh, oh, you notice maybe that their, their legs asleep or they're limping. You think, oh, you soften into kindness and compassion and you can feel that shift take place in the mind. And that moment matters. It doesn't mean that the habits never recur, but in that moment we're liberating the heart and we're reteaching our mind its loveliness. Reteaching our mind its loveliness. Sometimes I think of this path as being a move, this kind of move from one kind of choicelessness to wise choice, to another kind of choicelessness. Now, the first dimension of choicelessness is where we started, you know, that first chapter. Confusion, helpless, don't know where we are. Stuck in habits, impulses. But then we begin to wake up and we begin to see, actually, the power of intentionality, the power of mindfulness, And we can begin to sense in that moment to moment, there's a sense of possibility. There's a sense of making choices. There's a sense of walking a new pathway. And actually, there is another dimension of choicelessness where wakefulness is so embodied, so naturalized, that kindness and compassion is what is manifested. Which brings us to the fourth chapter. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. As our practice deepens, our understanding of the landscape of our heart really deepens. We begin actually really to see the holes (coughs) that we're prone to fall into. And we see that falling in the hole, that's just one of the possibilities that's available to us. There there are other possibilities of walking a different path. If I give you an example, you know, you're outside during the walking meditation, you hear the bell go to come and sit. And there may be a moment of aversion, a moment of resistance, thinking, oh, I'd rather take a nap, I'd rather read a book, you know. And it's, it's just a moment. It's just a moment. And how do we respond? Do we feed, at times, historical habits? 
or do we feed actually the dedication that has brought us all here to being awake and to meeting the moment unconditionally? We walk around the whole. You know, maybe, maybe at breakfast we didn't have the yogurt that we had yesterday that we so loved, you know. And maybe you can feel that little surge that says, oh, I'm going to write a note to the cooks, you know. <laughs> or, or maybe we say, ah, oh, no, maybe i just be with what is. We're walking a different path in that moment. We're actually liberating the moment, liberating the heart from that hold of reactivity. We can do this too with ourselves. Sometimes we see judgmental thoughts of ourselves arising, you know, and it's kind of like an open door, you know, and we see with that open door, we could walk down that whole historical trail of how I've never been good at anything, I never will be good at anything, you know, and there are so many reasons why I'm not good at anything, or else we could see that judgmental thought and really see the harm we are doing to ourselves and bring kindness, bring compassion, and we are walking down another path. We walk around the holes not because they're bad or wrong, but because we know their outcome. Now, walking around the holes, I think, has really a very powerful impact upon our consciousness because it's making this move from a sense of helplessness to a sense of confidence. And I personally never underestimate the value of confidence in walking this path and cultivating the confidence in our capacity to walk this path and cultivating the confidence in our capacity to actually know liberation for ourselves and to hold that as a genuine possibility for all of us. You know, the Buddha once said, if I did not know that it was possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. He said, if I did not know that it was possible for you to discover immeasurable freedom, I would not ask it of you to walk this path. And that, you know, to find that kind of confidence in ourselves is a very, very powerful shift. It's a very, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to the liberation that is truly possible for us. Now this journey, you've probably noticed, so far it requires some effort, doesn't it? It really does require some effort. It requires some, the intention to be present, renewed again and again, moment to moment. But you know what? This with practice, with understanding, that which has seemed to take so much effort does become more effortless. And you know why? Because we begin to fall in love with being awake. We begin to fall in love with being present. We begin to fall in love with having our eyes open rather than being infatuated with the habits that can govern our lives. And that is such a shift to love being awake, (coughs) to love the pathways of kindness, to love the pathways of compassion. Which brings us to chapter 5. I walk down another street. This is this other dimension of choicelessness, the naturalization of awareness, the embodiment of awareness, And at the heart of this teaching, at the heart of this path, is what is called the third ennobling truth. The truth of the end of suffering. The truth of the liberation of the heart. And this third ennobling truth does not exist outside of the other ennobling truths. The first, that there is struggle and pain. The second, that there are causes. The fourth, that there's pathways to the end of struggle and pain, that there are pathways to liberation. And the fruition, as the Buddha spoke about it, is a boundless and immeasurable heart, radiant, luminous, where there is no longer the arising of ill will or craving or confusion, but the heart that rests 
in a pervading kindness, compassion, and equanimity. And we hear this and we may say, well, that's great news, but it feels impossible for me. But this is the other street. As we mentioned this afternoon, Pali is not a language of nouns. It's a language of verbs. And what we're really doing here is learning to liberate the moment. One moment at a time. We're learning to liberate the moment from confusion. We're learning to liberate the heart from habit. We're learning to liberate the heart from the causes of pain. And in this, every moment matters. Every moment matters. I'd like to end with a poem by Mary Oliver, and it's called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light, It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? We have just a moment quietly together. <clears throat> 